0: You're listening to Hidden History, and I'm your host, Ellis Tucci. If you know any way that I can improve my content for you, the listener, shoot me a message on Twitter, at Ellis A. Tucci. I would love to hear from you. To catch up on all my past episodes and hear new ones every week, subscribe to the show on Spotify, follow it on Apple Podcasts, or visit www.hiddenhistory.show. If you enjoy what I do, I'd love it if you left a review and shared it with your friends. And now, on to the show. Unfortunately there will not be an episode next week, as I'm taking a few days off. This is the final part in my multi-part series on race relations in the United States. This episode is going to be somewhat similar in format to my previous content but I'm going to try something a little bit different this week in terms of how I present this information. Normally, I structure episodes chronologically, so that means by default I talk about the subject in terms of events that can ground it to a specific time. I did it last episode, in that my timeline started in the Middle Ages, I talked about some events from that time, and then I picked everything up and moved forward so I could talk about other events further on. Now, this structure has served me really well in the past, and it's allowed me to produce some excellent content. But for this episode, I want to try and be less wed to chronology, and instead create the narrative thread through the continual critical analysis of an idea. This episode is going to be about race relations under industrial capitalism, and in order to do that well, I really need to bring a critical analysis of industrial capitalism to the forefront of this discussion, so that this episode can exist not just as a retelling of the past, but can also incorporate strong elements of reflection and social criticism. So, let's get down to business. This is Hidden History, and you're listening to episode 55, John Brown's Body. In August 2019, in an interview with Democracy Now!, Ibram Kendi, the founder of American University's Anti-Racist Research and Policy Center, said that he viewed racism and industrial capitalism as quote, conjoined twins. That is to say that the origin of these two things is the same, that where capitalism is found, so is racism. So let's explode that claim a little bit and talk about how we get to that conclusion. The other day, I saw a picture on my friend's Instagram story, and the message it conveyed was essentially, desperate people make for the best workers. If people are stripped of their humanity, if they're kept in a precarious place, then they're susceptible to being exploited by their employers. The nature of this relationship means that there's an employer incentive to perpetuate insecurity among their workforce in order to maintain paying the lowest wage possible. The existence of that lowest possible wage also means that employees are robbed of the ability to accumulate enough capital in order to securely seek other means of employment. This dynamic supports the claims on the origin of capitalism that Pyotr Kropotkin makes in the conquest of bread. Quote, poverty, we have said elsewhere, was the primary cause of wealth. It was poverty that created the first capitalist, because before accumulating, quote, surplus value, of which we hear so much, men had to be sufficiently destitute to consent to sell their labor so as to not die of hunger. In a world dominated by capitalism, capitalistic systems make it impossible to exist outside of them. I can already tell that, based on some of the things I've said so far, only a few minutes into the episode, that I've probably made some people rather angry. Now, if you're a regular listener to the show, you know that when these types of things happen, I don't really care, because I like to think that this show has always been on the right side of history. But I'm not going to do that here, because this is a topic that, to a lot of people, might be unheard of, or preposterous, or slanderous. To those people, I want you to know that this episode is a sincere, good-faith attempt at education, so that we might all have a better future together. As the arch-conservative radio host Dennis Prager once said, The greatest struggle in your life is the class struggle. So, now that that's out of the way, I need to talk about well, a lot. I'm going to start off talking about the historic roots of capitalist thought, and then I need to talk about the implications of industrialization, as well as all the stuff that goes under that umbrella. But before I do that, I want to talk about why the main argument against a bond between racism and capitalism doesn't really hold water. This is a critique that comes from the Austrian School of Economics, known for the work of Karl Menger, Ludwig von Mises, and Friedrich Hayek, and it goes a little bit like this. In a perfect capitalist system, racial discrimination in markets would be impossible because if a business chose to discriminate against workers on the basis of wage, then a competitor would seize upon that cost differential and hire all the members of that group at a lower pay rate, causing that increased profitability to drive the discriminating firm from the market. Now, this is flawed in a number of ways. First, in that it operates under the presumption of a perfectly free market, which is something that does not exist. It's a non-argument to see racial discrimination under capitalism and respond with, yes, well, but under a perfect system. If your argument has to rest on a foundation that exists outside of the realm of possibility, then it's probably not a very strong argument. The second way in which this is a flawed argument comes from the form of who it's arguing for. At surface level, one could interpret it to be saying that under perfect capitalism, racial discrimination is bad for the workers and so firms competing for workers would be economically unable to discriminate. It's an argument that there is more profit to be made in non-discriminatory hiring practices because the labor of the discriminated group can be bought for less. It's a parable for the boss, not for the worker. And it's not like this is a bad faith interpretation, either. Perfectly competitive capitalism necessitates a race to the bottom in terms of worker compensation as firms are forced to deal with continually decreasing profit margins. Selective discrimination lowers the labor value of a given group, which means that the person who owns the means of production can maximize their profits through encouraging the use of discrimination as a dividing force. The last reason that the Austrian analysis of race discrimination in capitalism is wrong is because, well, empirically the numbers say something different. In Jim Sedanius's 1993 paper for the International Society of Political Psychology, Racism and Support for Free Market Capitalism, the results of a large sample size study conducted in both the United States and Sweden found a statistically significant correlation between support for capitalism and racist attitudes. The study itself was conducted using three different methods of evaluation, each achieving similar findings. These results are supported by similar correlations observed in works spanning a significant amount of time. For example, the book The Authoritarian Personality, written by Theodore Adorno, Elise Frankel brunswick Daniel Levinson, and Nevitt Sanford, was published in 1950 in the wake of World War II, and found a correlation between antisemitic and ethnocentric beliefs and support for economic conservatism. Now, the authoritarian personality supposes that this link is the result of authoritarian personality syndrome, as well as the subject's belief in general conservatism. Misrepresenting data could only serve to damage the credibility of my show. So I feel that it's important to distinguish that while the authoritarian personality does establish a relationship between these two things, it doesn't attempt to say that that relationship is causal. We've also gotta remember that definitively proving causality when it comes to mass human behavior is a nebulous task. I feel like I've gotta put that in there so angry guys on Facebook don't call me an NPC, but if we're being honest, they probably stopped listening a while ago. The safe word is pumpkin patch, include that in your comment so I know you got this far. But, anyway. Bringing this back, we need to take a look at the roots of industrial capitalism in the United States. But before that happens, I need to talk about the economic brutality of England, the source of the majority of America's governing ideals. Now, I'm not going to go back to the Middle Ages like I did last episode. Instead, I'm going to talk about an idea that rose to prominence during the mechanization of Great Britain. Social Darwinism. Now, I'm sure a lot of you remember learning about social Darwinism in your middle school social studies class, so instead of doing a preface, we're just going to dive right into talking about a political economist named Thomas Malthus. Malthus is mainly known for a series of writings where he established the idea of the Malthusian Trap, or the idea that population growth will outpace food production and cause mass famine one of the ways that Malthus thought we should prevent this catastrophe was by killing a large portion of the population. If you're a Marvel fan, his ideas should remind you of a certain purple supervillain. Now, when we talk about Malthus, there's an incredible amount of stuff to unpack, because, well, obviously he was wrong. Not only did we never experience the Malthusian trap, but famine is not the result of a production capacity issue, it's the result of a distribution issue. Even when Malthus was writing his treatises in the early 1800s, there was a significant production surplus of food, a trend that has existed all the way to the present day. The United States throws away over $160 billion of food a year, Right now, across the world, there are over 795 million people going hungry, but according to Eric Holt-Gimenez, Annie Shattuck, Miguel Altieri, Hans Herron, and Steve Gleisman's research for the Journal of Sustainable Agriculture, we currently produce enough to feed 10 billion people. That's around one and a half times the current population of Earth. So with numbers like that, it's I think, pretty reasonable to ask why world hunger still exists. If you want to learn more about the impacts of intentional food overproduction, you can listen to episode 27, The Big Cheese. But anyway, all of this is to say that Thomas Malthus was dead wrong. But it gets worse. Malthus recommended that we reduce the population by killing all of the poor people. Here's an excerpt from his 1798 Essay on Population. Instead of recommending cleanliness to the poor, we should encourage contrary habits. In our towns, we should make the streets narrower, crowd more people into the houses, and court the return of the plague. In the country, we should build our villages near stagnant pools, and particularly encourage settlements in all marshy and unwholesome situations. But above all, we should reprobate specific remedies for ravaging diseases, and those benevolent but much-mistaken men who have thought they were doing a service to mankind by projecting schemes for the total extirpation of particular disorders. If by these and similar means the annual mortality were increased, we might probably every one of us marry at the age of puberty, and yet few be absolutely starved. So that is Social Darwinism, and I think it's hard to overstate how monstrous that passage is. I mean, this guy is saying that we should get the Black Plague to come back and actively prevent poor people from being treated for curable diseases, but moving past this absolutely evil proposal, we need to examine the underlying assumption that this argument makes. And that argument is that poor people are poor not due to the perpetuation of a system meant to enforce their poverty, but because they contribute less to society, because they're worthless on account of their poverty. Thomas Malthus essentially believes that poor people are poor because they're stupid. Conversely, that rich people must be rich because they're smart. Now, this way of thinking hasn't gone away. Yes, nobody to my knowledge is running on a policy platform of bringing back the Black Plague, but these types of anti-poor policies from the 1700s have a different modern manifestation in the structural criminalization of poverty. The criminalization of poverty is the steady combination of criminal justice goals and poverty relief government programs. It's things like President Clinton's 1996 federal welfare legislation, also known by its official name, the Personal Responsibility and Work Opportunity Reconciliation Act of 1996, which effectively gutted the social safety net, lowering income for single mothers, forcing welfare recipients into homeless shelters, and allowing states control over the dispensations of their previously federal welfare system which, of course, gave states the ability to entirely eliminate their welfare programs. 1996 reform only served to dramatically increase poverty, and it was passed under the guise of new legislation to combat welfare abuse, which is a bit like using an asteroid to open a walnut. Here's an excerpt from Karen Gustafson's 2009 article for the Journal of Criminal Law and Criminology, titled, the criminalization of poverty. Perhaps no state has been tougher on welfare fraud than California. California is one of the most aggressive states not only in investigating and prosecuting welfare fraud cases, but also in welcoming law enforcement into the welfare system. Even before receipt of a first issuance of a grant, an applicant for welfare is reminded of the welfare system's punitive rules and undergoes state scrutiny otherwise limited to criminal offenders. A welfare recipient has likely signed documents informing her that her welfare grant will be reduced or terminated if she has a boyfriend move in without informing the state, if she fails to vaccinate her children, or if she is convicted of a drug charge. She has probably signed a document stating that any child she conceives and gives birth to while on welfare will be excluded from calculations of household financial need. Her social security number has been matched against state and national criminal records to make sure that she is not someone who should be incarcerated, that she does not have an outstanding arrest warrant, and that she has not been convicted of a drug-related crime. The financial information she has provided has been matched against various employment databases, IRS records, and franchise tax board records to see that her lack of income is verifiable. Her personal information has been entered into the welfare systems database, which may be accessed by law enforcement officers without any basis for suspicion that she has engaged in any wrongdoing. She has been photographed and fingerprinted and all of this has occurred before she has received a single welfare check. I think it's safe to say that the system that Gustafsson describes is not primarily focused on improving the well-being of its beneficiaries, but rather humiliating them and reinforcing awareness of their own poverty. So, what does all of this have to do with race? I've been talking for a while now, and I haven't mentioned a lot that's explicitly critical race theory. And that, my friends, I think you might know this one is coming, it's because of intersectionality. For those unfamiliar with the term, it essentially means that these issues don't occur in a vacuum, and that they're all linked together. I mean, honestly, if your analysis isn't intersectional, then it's got some pretty glaring blind spots. All the stuff I have mentioned earlier in this episode are things that have been weaponized against minority groups in the United States as a result of capitalist practice. Employment discrimination has allowed for the creation of a racially split workforce where for every dollar a white man makes, a black man makes 87 cents and a black woman makes 61 cents. The racial wage gap feeds into the increasing stratification of class along racial lines, which contributes to the widening of the opportunity gap, which makes it more difficult for non-white Americans to build generational wealth. As a result of this economic disparity, median white household in the United States will end up owning 86 times the wealth of their black counterparts. If you think this is unintentional, it's not it's not a bug, it's a feature. Unlike what the Austrian economists propose, capitalist firms are not crusaders for the common good, but rather they seek to water down ideas to become the most widely appealing to their market. Market forces are logically the result of the whims of the market, and if the market, say, believes that having black neighbors will lower their property values, then the market will accommodate by building white-only suburbs, and the government, beholden to the influence of capital, will accommodate by redlining neighborhoods and increasing police presence in minority spaces. But if the actions of capitalist firms are directed by the market, you might ask, then couldn't we end capitalism's attachment to racism by ending the sum of our personal racist beliefs? Well, no. Even if we ignore the correlation between ethnocentrism and support for free market capitalism, which means that whoever's at the top most likely doesn't have enlightened racial attitudes, even if we ignore that, then we still have to reckon with the fact that our industrial capitalist economy was built using slave labor, creating a legacy of race-capital relations that spans hundreds of years. Our current economic system would not have been possible had our domestic economy not been built using slavery and had our globalized economy not been supplemented with cheap goods produced by using exploitative labor in majority non-white countries. But even if you ignore our economic support for exploitation abroad, then our domestic use of economic exploitation along racial lines has not only created a deep wealth and opportunity disparity that benefits the white majority, but it also created systems of economic oppression that perpetuate to this day. It is like a tumor that is so ingrained into the body that it cannot be removed without the killing of the host the goal of capitalism is to divide and conquer the human soul. As President Lyndon Johnson once said, if you can convince the lowest white man he's better than the best colored man, he won't notice you're picking his pocket. Hell, give him somebody to look down on, and he'll empty his pockets for you. As I near the end of this episode, I'm reminded of the fact that this episode's name references a very specific historical event that I haven't talked about at all. John Brown's 1859 raid on Harper's Ferry, West Virginia. Originally I had intended for this episode to be narrative-based, like all the rest, and I was going to talk about the raid as a reaction to and resulting from slavery in the industrial United States. Ultimately, obviously, I decided to go a different way with this episode. But once I come up with an episode's name, you know, that's it. I'm too stubborn to change it. So to make myself feel like I haven't completely ignored the original intent of this episode, I want to end this week's show by playing you the famous folk song of the same name. But one more thing before I do that. And this isn't really related to the topic of this episode at all. The day before I recorded this, January 2nd, the United States military confirmed that it had, in an unprovoked airstrike, killed the second most powerful man in Iran, the head of the nation's external security forces. It was a reckless move that has seemingly pushed the country to the brink of war with a very capable adversary. This perpetuation of the forever war would be more disastrous than Iraq and Afghanistan combined if we go to war it will cost not only trillions of dollars but a mountain of corpses primarily of Iranian civilians nvr referred to the 2010s as a decade of protest We need to carry that trend forward into the new year and show the hawks and the privateers in power that we won't blindly be led into another war that could claim the lives of hundreds of thousands. We must take to the streets and say no to another senseless slaughter in the Middle East. Thanks for listening. Here's Pete Seeger singing John Brown's body. This is Ellis Tucci, at Hidden History, signing off.
1: John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave. John Brown's body lies a-mouldering in the grave, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Glory, glory, hallelujah, but his soul goes marching on. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down. The stars above in heaven are looking kindly down down on the grave of old John Brown. Glory, glory, hallelujah, glory. Glory, glory, hallelujah His soul goes marching on He captured Harper's Ferry with his ninety men so true He frightened old Virginia till she trembled through and through They hanged him for a traitor, they themselves the traitor crew His soul goes marching on Glory, glory, hallelujah Glory, glory, hallelujah, glory, glory, hallelujah, his soul goes marching on. Well, he's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord. He's gone to be a soldier in the army of the Lord, but his soul goes marching on. Glory, glory, hallelujah. Had seen the glory of the coming of the Lord. He is trampling out the vintage where the grapes of wrath is stored. He's loosed the fateful lightning of his terrible swift sword. His truth is marching on.